Psalm 32, if you're not there already, go ahead and turn to there. And um, before I pray, I want to read this psalm to you from the New Living Translation. It's always beautiful to, to read, and I hope you do that in your study time. Just different translations. It just brings a little life to it. So I'm going to read from there. It says, Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven. <laughs> whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me, and my strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Selah. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you, and I stopped trying to hide my guilt. And I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me, and all my guilt is gone. Hallelujah. (laughs) Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there is still time, that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. For you are my hiding place, you protect me from trouble, you surround me with songs of victory. Selah. The Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life, and I will advise you and watch over you. Do not be like a senseless horse or mule that needs a bit and a bridle to keep it under control. Many sorrows come to the wicked, but unfailing love surrounds those who trust the Lord. So rejoice in the Lord and be glad, all you who obey him. Shout for joy, all you whose hearts are pure. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the life that we find in it. And so, Lord, you've already, you've already prepared the soil of the women's hearts this week as they have poured into your word, and they have done their own digging and gotten their own treasures. So tonight, Lord, we just ask that as your word goes forth and the things you've placed on my heart, that it would... Uh, take root and go down, and Lord, that you would speak to us and give us fresh manna, a fresh word for us this evening, and uh, work this into our lives, Lord, that we would listen and take heed. In Jesus' name, amen. So you probably all know that this is a psalm, um, not only of David, but it's called a mesquil, or a psalm of instruction. Um, It's written with the intent that we would contemplate on it, and that um, we would want to learn a lesson from it. That as we're reading it, we're wanting to learn a lesson. And in this case, we know it's a very sobering lesson. It's about unconfessed sin and the ramifications of trying to hide it. But you know, it's also a beautiful, joyous psalm because it contrasts for us the marvelous effects on a person's life who runs to God instead from, of away from him and confesses their sin and experiences forgiveness. And who more fitting to pen this psalm And for us to receive instruction from, but then King David. Because we know King David. We love King David. He was this young boy called and chosen by God to lead God's people. We know that he was anointed to be the king. He had a passion to serve God. He had 
um, just this desire to please God. And for much of his life, he did. He did. Much of David's life, he did well. But we are all familiar with his tragic, sad, sad story of failure and sin where he did succumb to temptation, where he committed adultery. And when we hear that, I don't know about you, I don't know if it's just a woman thing, but it's just like, no, you know, we just, no, how can that be? I mean, that in itself is so grievous. But if that were not bad enough, then he finds out that he's gotten Bathsheba pregnant And then he does this whole botched cover-up thing. You know, he just goes in a panic mode. He tries to cover up the sin, and it doesn't work. And then in his desperation and fear to be found out, he's trying to conceal the truth. He does the unthinkable, and he has an innocent man murdered. I mean, he just spirals down, down, down in just a pit of a mess. And then, if that were not enough, he tries to hide his guilt and his shame from everyone around him, and more importantly, from God himself. So I can imagine, you can imagine, that this psalm was not easy for David to pen. But, you know, it was out of obedience because David had made a promise to God in Psalm 51 that if God would be merciful and forgive him and restore his joy, that he would teach transgressors God's way. And now, in a time in his life, it's time, the Holy Spirit's prompting him, David, it's time to write the psalm. It's time to share your story. So David had to be willing, and he had to be vulnerable and honest and share what he learned. You know, he didn't write it in his personal, you know, journal that's just between him and God, right, that we all have, right? When we pen and we have our journals and we tuck them away, we're hoping that no one will ever find them and read them, right? Is anyone else like that, or is it just me, you know? Um, That's our natural reaction. You know, I started journaling back when I was 17 years old. So I have a lot of journals that journal my life. And there are some things written in those books that I really don't want to be read. There's sin. There's rebellion. There's pride. There's bad choices. There's disobedience. And I'm naked and I'm undone in my journals before the Lord. I'm exposed on those pages of my heart and my battles and my fears. But you know when I die, if, if, if my kids were to read those journals, or maybe even if they got their hands on them while I was still alive, (laughs) I do know this. I know that those journals will testify to God's great love and his great mercy and his great faithfulness and forgiveness in my own life and the great joy and rejoicing I have found in Christ. That the very, you know, my heart of song and worship, it's to give him praise and to give him thanksgiving all the time. And I would hope that if my kids would read them, that they would listen to the wisdom and they would like pay attention to the instruction and the failures of their mom and that they would take heed and they would um, want to learn what God's word says and follow that instruction. So after David pens Psalm 32, he gives it to that chief musician and it's to be sung and it's to be learned by the people and to give them instruction. And so it's for us too. And ladies, do you 
you all identify with Psalm 32? I hope you do. I know I do. Regardless of our circumstances or our personal stories or the severity of our own sin, we are all sinners in need of grace and in need of forgiveness. Amen? And we have a loving, good Father and a beautiful Savior who has made a way. So let's just... We don't have a lot of time. We're just going to touch on a few nuggets from Psalm 32, and then you can share more in your groups. But I love how this song begins, where it says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered, and blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. You know, this psalm just bursts out of happiness and joy. Um, you know, from being forgiven and the blessings of that. And then it like ends in this commanding and resounding. So shout for joy and rejoice, you upright in heart. And did anybody just shout at home on your own? And just did anybody just give out a shout? Okay, listen, you need to obey the word, okay? Put it into practice. When it says shout out, you better be doing some shouting, okay? I'm just saying. I'm just saying. So. But if you think about it, it's like it's, it just expresses this huge release that we all know and we feel when we stop trying to suppress our guilt and instead we confess our sin. And verse 3 and 4 is just such a sad, sad picture. It says, when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. And then it says, Selah. Think about that. Consider that. So David contrasts for us what it was like when he was trying to lead basically this double life where everything looked good on the outside, but inside he's a mess. And he thinks he's fooling people around him, um, just trying to behave and look normal. But, but it's all a lie. It's all a lie. And he's like tormented on the inside. And Hebrews 4.13 says, There's no creature hidden from God's sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God sees it all. So David, he's miserable. He's agonizing. It says there's, it's like this inner roaring going on inside of him, this unconfessed sin. It's basically just sucking the life right out of David. He feels old. He's oppressed. He's dry. He's wasting away. And, you know, when we try to live with the unconfessed sin, the effects are the same in our life. You've seen it, and some of you have experienced even mental health. Because we're trying to live that lie, we're trying to suppress the true emotions going on. There's this unbearable stress, a loss of joy. It affects us mentally. It, it affects us physically in our health, and we've got the headaches and the ulcers and the pain and the fatigue and the blood pressure and the heart problems, and the list goes on and on. Because the insides, they need a release. The guilt is there. And in our spiritual health, we, you know, sin separates us from God, from fellowship with God. And so we begin to lack in our lives. And we see that, that we're not producing spiritual fruit in our lives. And we feel like we're dried up. But notice that God does not leave David or forsake him. 
It says that day and night God's hand was heavy upon David. So David felt God's conviction and his discipline and his presence. And we know that that's a sign of God's love. I love a quote by Spurgeon. He says, God's hand is very helpful when it uplifts, but it is awful when it presses down. Better a world on the shoulder like Atlas than God's hand on the heart like David. Powerful. Deuteronomy 8.5, you should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. And for all of you who have been parents, you know what it's like to chasten your rebellious teenagers. And you do not leave them to their own demise. No way. You don't back off. You get in their space and in their face. And you want to know what's going on. And every time they turn around, there you are. (laughs) And every time they sin, you find out. My kids just used to be like, how do you always find out? And I'm like, it's the love of God for you. He loves you. And so I'm praying for you and the Holy Spirit is revealing and he will do that. That's his job because he, God loves you. And so he's chastening you. And so you can't get away with anything. And I wanted my teenagers to know that. You know, and we're trying to get to the root of the rebellion. Like, what is going on in your heart? And you tell them over and over again, I have to discipline you, but it's because I love you, and I'll do whatever I can to get you back on the right path, making the right choices. But, but, no matter what you do, or how far you turn, or how far you run, I'm not going anywhere. You are mine, and I love you. That's the heart of a mama for her kids. And so much more the heart of our Abba Father for you and for me. And David knew that God was not going to let him get away with this. Notice, though, it says that he kept silent. In other words, even though David knew the sin was not hidden from God, he chose to keep silent. It was like this, this resolute determination of stubbornness in David's heart. And we have to say, why? Why, David? Because it's our human nature to hide, isn't it? Even in the beginning, Adam and Eve, as soon as they sin, what do they do? They run and they hide. They want to cover up their shame and their guilt. And then when God finds them, then they play the blame game. Eve made me do it. Satan made it do it. All the excuses that start to happen. Why? Because we're afraid. We're fearful beings. We're afraid of consequences. We're afraid of being punished. And so in our sin nature, we lie, we make excuses, we, we get stubborn, we don't want to relent. And when the sin is severe, in other words, in those things that we do in our life, our sin where it affects other people around us who we love, and it always does, But where there's damage done, there's heartache, there's suffering, there's brokenness, the impulse is always for self-preservation. Always. Because we don't want the consequences of our sin. We don't want to pay the price. We don't want to lose our reputation. We don't want to lose our possessions. We don't want to lose our family, our marriage, our friends. We don't want to go to jail. Those are all those 
things that self-preservation kicks in when we know we are in deep trouble. And David, think about it. He, would, he could lose everything. The punishment for his crime was death. That's what he deserved, and he knew it. And so there's this tormenting fear at the root of David's resistance to confession. And it says, my vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Praise the Lord. (laughs) David finally does the right thing on his own, right? He comes forward and he comes clean. Is that what happened? No. No. That is not what happened. God had to send a prophet to come to David and expose David and say, David, you are guilty. You are guilty. It's missing in this psalm, but it's recorded in other scripture where the prophet had to come to him and basically tell him, you can't hide any longer. And how sad that David didn't take the first step toward God to confess his sin but that he waited until he was exposed and undone. And how that seems to be the story of all age. You know, I was thinking about so many of the sad, sad stories I have heard and I know personally of people, godly people, believers, some pastors, some pastors' wives, some, some people in leadership roles where lives and families and marriages and ministries are, fe- are affected by sin, often it's sexual immorality of one form or another, or adultery or rape or abuse or lying or stealing or drugs or alcohol addictions. And you know, I sat and I thought about it, and I could not remember one time in all the years in my walk with the Lord in those really sad crisis moments in people's life. I could not think of one person that ever came forward on their own and confessed their sin. I couldn't. And I racked my brain. I'm like, come on, 30 years of ministry, there, there had to be one person that I can recall. And I couldn't. So I went to my husband. I'm like, babe, t- can you take a minute? I really need you to think this answer through. And so I asked him, can you, come on, there Somebody, right? Has anybody ever come forward on their own? And he's like, nope. He didn't even take a minute to think. And I was still like, that's so discouraging. But you know, it reveals our humanity. And then I had to think about myself. What would I do? It's easy to judge on the other side. And I was reminded by the Lord that it's not just in those critical, terrible times when we completely blow it that we should be taking the first step and coming to him. But always, because it begins in those little things, doesn't it? That we just put off, we ignore that conviction, we become dull of hearing, we make our excuses, and it just leads us down a path we never thought we would go. I'm like, Lord, may we, us women in this this room, be women 
who would willingly come forward and confess our sin. The reality is acknowledgement and confession of our sin is the only path to forgiveness, ladies. Okay, It's the only path to forgiveness. And when David finally did acknowledge his sin, and he's on his face before the Lord, and he, notice it says, my sin, my iniquity. He took ownership of it. He called it what it was. David didn't say, how blessed is he whose unspecified childhood issues are forgiven and whose denial and faulty coping techniques are covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute stepping over the line of acceptable behavior. Isn't that what the world's doing? No one's calling it sin anymore. And we like that. We like, you know, having some kind of title or excuse or disease or whatever. It just makes it easier than acknowledging that it's sin. And then once we acknowledge our sin... Confession needs to follow. It's admitting to God our guilt. And David did that. And he didn't hold back. Um, Verse 1 and 2, he actually used four different types of sin. He just covered it all. He talks about transgression, which is stepping across the line. It's when God says, thou shalt not, and you do it. So it involves rebellion. That's transgression. And then he speaks of the sin that's covered, and sin is it's missing the mark of perfection. It's, it's an offense. Often it's willful. Sometimes it's reactionary, and we go, oh my goodness, I can't believe I just did that. I can't believe I just behaved that way. Sin, missing the mark. And then he talks about iniquity. And the idea behind iniquity is that inner condition of the human being, that perversity, the depravity, the crookedness, the bent that we have. And then he talks about Guile, which is deceit. It's being fraudulent, deceitful. It's a picture of like the archer whose bow is deceitful. It shoots untruly. And there's something so freeing that happens when we just get real with God and we acknowledge our sin for what it is and we say what it is. I wish I had more time. I've been struggling to share a personal story, but plus it's recorded and online. That's the one thing I really don't like these days with technology. Cause... But you know, no, it's okay because it's a test, right? Am I going to be, you know, willing? And I need to be willing. So example in my life, back my senior year of high school, I got sick. I think I had like the flu, the stomach flu, and I vomited. And that went on for a couple days. Well, after that, I had the impulse to vomit. Okay? So, I started vomiting after I ate. But I'm thinking, so something's wrong with me. Okay, I'm just going to... So, speed up. This continues to go on. So, finally... I go to the doctor. I'm thinking, okay, I don't know. Some kind, I don't even know what they called it. They gave it a name for me of some kind of spasm that was going on. But here's the deal. It went from, it didn't start out, I'm going to throw up and be a bulimic. But the road, because I, when, the, when I knew I had those moments of choice, I denied it and actually found satisfaction in it that I spent close to five years of my life in denial. Seriously, 
I was deceiving myself and telling everyone around me, my friends, my family, I was dating Rob at the time. I was not being truthful. They knew I was battling, but they thought, you know, I had my excuses. And I, had, I was tormented on the inside because I knew I was in bondage. I knew I was making excuses. And when I really brought it all down, and this took years, it was fear. Fear if I stopped, then what's going to happen? I'm going to get obese. All the lies of the enemy, the fear of being known. What would Rob think? What would my family think? And, you know, I would have times where I would beg God to take it away from me, you know, where I really thought I was repentive, you know, and I'm crying and I've got my tears. But I had never really completely just said what it was that I had become bulimic. And it wasn't until the day when I finally did that and I quit making my excuses and I called it for what it is, that it was sin. I admitted my fears to the Lord and I surrendered those fears. I let go. The moment I did that, there was freedom because I was forgiven. I was finally free on the inside and it gave me the empowerment to walk in victory on the outside. See, we can deceive ourselves, can't we? It happens so easily, and we don't even see it in ourselves, but God is relentless. He goes after us. His hand was heavy upon me until I came clean. Another quote from Spurgeon, Sinner, may God make you honest. Do not deceive yourself. Make a clean breast of it before God. Have an honest religion or have none at all. Have a religion of the heart or else have none. Put aside the mere vestment and garment of piety and let your soul be right within. Be honest. And you know, confession is not just verbalizing your sin, okay? Confession involves sorrow. There should be sorrow. There should be some real grief, There should be some tears flowing. There should be something going on. says, ah, but there are too many who make confession having no broken hearts, no streaming eyes, no flowing tears, no humbled spirits. Know ye this, that 10,000 confessions, if they are made by hardened hearts, and if they do not spring from really contrite spirits, it shall only be additions to your guilt, as they are mockeries before the Most High. Remember, 2 Corinthians 7.10 tells us that godly sorrow leads to repentance. So you have acknowledge my sin, confess it, and then repent of it. Turn and change your way. Go in the other direction. Turn to Psalm 51. I just feel like we have to read Psalm 51 because this is really the prayer of repentance that David had when he when when. The prophet came, and he was finally undone. And so if you haven't read it on your own, I want to make sure we read it together because it's a beautiful picture of us, what true repentance looks like. Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak, the blameless when you judge. 
Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. And then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. So God met David in his brokenness, and he graciously forgave him. And David knew it. And we have to say, well, how? How did he know? Because, I mean, it happens in the moment. It's not like we're put on parole, you know. Let's see, you know, maybe I'm going to forgive you. No, God forgave him in that instant. How, how did he know? How he, was he so certain? How can we be so certain? Well, right away, we feel it. There's like this weight of condemnation that's lifted off of us. And this darkness that now we're exposed, we're in the light, and it feels safe. It's a good place. We know because we know our God. We know his character. We believe his promises and his word. And and David knew that God loved him enough to bring the prophet to him, to expose him. That God was going to go after him no matter what. Obviously, David's fellowship with God was restored. Now he's got joy. He's got peace in the inner parts of him. And that incredible agony was now turned to ecstasy. He's joyous. He's oh so happy. And the same is true for you and me. We know that feeling of God's amazing grace and his forgiveness in our lives, that he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And it does make us want to sing and shout for joy. Did God fix the mess David made? And does he fix all our messes that we've made just because we repent? No. No. We reap what we sow. There will be consequences For our sin. For David, it was the death of the baby. He had marriage and family issues and broken relationships that went on for years in his life. And deep down, he had to live with the reality of what he had done. But he also was given grace upon grace because God had made a covenant and a promise with David and with um, his descendants. And so David lived a long, full, prosperous, wonderful life even after this sin. And so do we. Even though we have the wonderful blessing of forgiveness that makes our hearts upright, right before God, we do still suffer consequences. And sometimes relationships are not righted. But in those deep waters, girls, we can still see God's hand of redemption and restoration and power, and presence, and we can rejoice in his deliverance because more than in, the most important deliverance we need is inside, 
is to be free, is to be right with our God and our maker. Verse 6 and 7, for this cause, because when we cry out to God, he forgives us. Everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come near him. You know, prayer is our greatest weapon in temptation and in our time of need. We need to pray and pray and pray more and talk to God and communicate with him and ask him for help and ask him for wisdom and guidance. And be wise, ladies, because Satan's tactic is to get you to stop praying. When we sin and we feel that guilt and that shame, we want to pull away. We don't feel like we can pray to God. And that's a lie from the pit. We need to go to God. But there is a caution because if we um, think that we can just stay in our rebellion and our sin and that God will still answer our prayers, we're wrong. We're wrong. Psalm 66, 18. Psalm 66, 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. So if you're wondering, why is God not answering my prayers? Why, 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 why? You have to go back and look. Is there unconfessed sin in your life that you're just okay with? That you just think you've got it hidden down really good. And you're in control. And you don't have to deal with that between you and the Lord. You need to. The Lord is our hiding place. He shall preserve us from trouble, girls, and he shall surround us with songs of deliverance, songs of escape. So girls, instead of hiding from God, we need to hide in God. Find our safe place in him. It's secure. One translation actually used the word panic room. And I kind of like that. Because <laughs> in those moments where we panic, because we're in trouble, you know, and we can't breathe, and we can't move, we need to run to shelter. We need to run to that panic room, God's room of shelter and safety. And he, and he encloses us in it, and he surrounds us with songs of deliverance. He encircles us so that our fears don't overtake us. So let's race there. He's got our lives in his hands, and we are his. And finally, in verse 8 and 9, it says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. The idea of this is one who waits upon another so attentively that all they have to do is look them in the eye, and that indicates their will. In other words, a butler with his master. If he sees the master just look at the salt shaker on the table... He knows instinctively he wants the salt shaker, and he would go and get it for him. And that's that kind of relationship that God and us were supposed to have with him, where we do know him intimately. We know his ways. We know his desire. We know his needs. And he can just look at us, and we can look at him, and he can guide us with his eye. (laughs) I love that picture. That's true fellowship. That's being sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And you know, he'd much rather guide us with his eye than for us to be the stubborn fool that he warns about here. He says, do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with a bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. God is saying, don't force me to make you come to me. Quit being stubborn. And if that's you tonight, and you've been holding on, thinking you've got this secret sin 
and you are miserable on the inside, and you have felt the heavy hand of God on you, but you've just kind of put your feet in and, and because you're so afraid of being undone before God, he would say to you tonight, stop it. Stop it. You need to quit being afraid, and you need to come to me. Acknowledge your sin. Humble yourself. Confess it. Repent. And God will forgive you tonight. You can be free tonight. You can leave here with a song in your heart and joy. Of course, there's always risk because, you know, we can get that right with God. But sometimes our fear is because the sin does affect people we love. We're like, well, I know God will forgive me, but I'm afraid because part of that process then would be I know I would need to go to that spouse. I would need to go to that person. and I, I would need to confess that sin. And that scares us even more, again, because of the consequences. We have to trust God. God honors obedience. God is the master of reconciliation and restoration. And we're deceiving ourselves if we think we're in right relationships with other people when we're not right with God. We're so being foolish because sin always finds us out. Always. So we can choose to come on our own free will and choose forgiveness and choose freedom and walk in the light or not. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround her. So it all comes back down to whether or not we're going to trust God. Do we trust his love for us? Because perfect love casts out fear. Do we trust that finished work on the cross that Jesus' blood covers all our sins? And do we trust that our lives are in his hands? Even when we make a mess of things that he will uphold us with his righteous right hand, and he will never forsake us. He loves us. Amen, girls? So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are relentless in your love toward us and that you do go after us. We thank you for your spirit in us that convicts us of our sin. And Lord, all of us can think of many, many times in our lives where we were so burdened and bogged down because we were rebellious and stupid and hiding from you. And then we finally confessed it. And oh, what joy and what freedom. And we do rejoice this tonight that the blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness that you can take and relieve that guilt and that shame. So, Lord, if there is anyone here tonight that's stuck and they're in that place and their heart's just beating fast because they know they need to do business with you, I pray that they would respond and obey tonight and run to you. And, Lord, for all of us, we just... Thank you, and we rejoice, and we thank you for this psalm, Lord, that, yeah, it's heavy, but it also resounds with joy 
and happiness. And we get to sing the song of the redeemed, (laughs) Lord, and we thank you. And I just pray for these women that you would surround them with your mercy and you would surround them with songs of deliverance and escape. And Lord, that they would bask in your grace and in your love and that you would put a song on their heart and that they would shout out your praises. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.